you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We are making our way through the book of Romans here, and as you're turning to Romans 10, I just want to ask you the question, is it possible to have all of the right information, yet arrive at the wrong destination? Oh, cool. Okay. Good. Then, then I can just like skip to the middle part of my teaching. You don't have to like develop that. No, you're absolutely right. We can have all of the right information and still arrive at the wrong destination. Now, there's, when it comes to information, I think there's really kind of two types of information that, that at least immediately pop into mind for me. There's the information of like names, dates, places, and facts. Then there is um, transformative information. There's understanding how those facts change our everyday living. In in process management, we call that the transformational process. It's taking information, and then based on that understanding of that information, we make changes to produce a different outcome. Now, in our text tonight, we're going to see that the Israelites, the Jews, they had all of the correct information about God. They had all of the correct information about God's way of salvation. And yet, they arrived at the wrong conclusion, the wrong destination. The same can be true for you and I. We, we can go to church regularly. We can read the scriptures devoutly. And we can still arrive at the wrong destination, the wrong conclusion, simply because we don't properly understand what God is communicating to you and I. We want to have the proper understanding of the correct information. So when that happens, that shapes the way you and I are going to live our daily lives. Our life, your life, is going to be shaped to the extent that you have understanding. Tonight, we're going to learn from the text, Romans 10, the type of life that God desires every single Christ follower to live. It's a life lived not just by what we know to be true, names, dates, places, but it's a life lived transformed by God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. And Lord, we thank you for your word. It is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, we invite you to this place. And Lord, we pray that as we open your word, you would open our hearts, that you would do heart surgery on us tonight. That, that God, many of us are familiar with your word. But God, we pray tonight that that you would move that knowledge to understanding. That we would be transformed. That we would be changed. That that, that when we leave here tonight, it, it would be more than, well, Romans 11 next week. But God, that it would be it would be so transformational in our life that we would have a new outlook and a new vision of who you are, who we are, and what you've sent us to do. So, Lord, we invite you. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 10. We're actually going to begin in chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. We're going to read verse, chapter 9, verses 30, through chapter 10, verse 3. Paul's writing. He says, What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. 
chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness." If you're taking notes tonight, the first way that I believe that God desires every single Christ follower to live is that they would live a biblically prayerful life. A biblically prayerful life. See, in this first few verses here, Paul talks about righteousness. Now, righteousness, we're going to define it this way. There's many ways we can, we can define it, but we're going to define it like this tonight. It is the behavior of a person's body, soul, and spirit, so the entire person, being morally and justifiably right before God. It is the entire person, body, soul, and spirit, being right in God's sight. Now, the predicament that Israel found themselves in was that their pursuit of righteousness was based on works. Right? The foundation of their right standing with God rested on the things that they did for God. Now, the issue this causes is that when a person sets the standard for what is... I'm sorry. The issue with this is that a person sets the standard for what is right and wrong. Works becomes the moral standard of good and bad. We see this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. The, the reason for the fall, right, is because when Adam and Eve took the, um, took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right, God said uh, they, 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 they have become like us knowing good and evil. What is God saying? He's saying now man is deciding for themselves what is right and what is wrong, no longer God. That's the same issue that the Israelites faced. Paul wrote in chapter 9, verse 32, that that was the reason for their stumbling. Now, Paul gets really surgical here. Okay, he dissects the basis of uh, of this and lists three factors why Israel has sought their own righteousness. And they're found in verses 1 2 and 3 of chapter 10. Up on the screen, here's what led to it. Verse 1, they didn't think they needed saving. The Jews didn't think it. They had a head problem. Their thoughts were wrong. They did not think they needed saving. Verse 2, they were zealous for works. Hands. The things that we do, the things that they did, were not the things of God. Verse 3, they were proud. They had a heart problem, the things that they believed about themselves, head, hands, and heart. These three factors were the cause of Israel's unbelief. Now, the head. Let's talk about the head for a minute. In Luke chapter 15 and chapter 18, there are two notable places where Jesus spoke about this fallen head condition directly. And and Israel thought Right? Israel thought that they needed political salvation from Rome. But Jesus said what? He says what you really need is spiritual saving. You see, the Israelites, the Jews, they had the right information, but the wrong understanding. Second, their hands. Paul says that they were zealous. They had an excitement for the things of God. They were so excited about the things of God that they added to God's law. And really what they were doing is is they're making their traditions equal to God's law. But where they went astray was their lack of knowledge, their lack of understanding. 16th century Anglican preacher Thomas Fuller, he says it like this. He says, zeal without knowledge is like fire without light. Third, they had a heart problem. Right? They, were, they were what? They were proud. Because they didn't think they needed spiritual saving. And because they were busy being active for the things of God without being faithful, 
they established for themselves their own standard of righteousness. And Paul says it like this in, in, chapter, in verse 3. He, he says that that's actually a lack of submission, that that's a rebellion against God. So they had a head, hands, and heart problem. And those three factors led to Israel's unbelief. Now, Paul, he, he can say these things about the Israelites with precision because he was one of them. Look at what Paul says about himself in Galatians 1. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely what? Zealous for the what? Traditions of my fathers. You see, Paul could identify with the lostness of his fellow countrymen. He understood exactly what was going on in their lives. He understood the head, hands, and heart problem that they faced. And he has this burden for his countrymen. He says in chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you hear Paul's burden? He desired so much that the Israelites would understand God's way of salvation, so much so that he says, if it were possible, I would take their place and they would take mine. I would switch roles with them. That was the extent, the level, the magnitude of his burden for lost souls. Friend, true heartfelt desire must give birth to Christ-centered action. What does Paul do about it? Paul, verse 1, he prays. He prays. He took his desire, he took his burden to prayer. Paul connected what was in his heart, a desire to see the lost saved, and he connected it with what was in God's heart. You know, tonight God also desires to see the lost saved. And he connected those two. And when he did, he realized that this was something that only God could accomplish. The burden in his heart was a God-sized burden, and he needed God's help. You know, tonight, some of you have God-sized burdens. Some of you tonight, I believe, have a burden in your heart for the things of God and that is a great thing, but don't just carry that burden in you. Do something with it. Do what Paul did. Pray. 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 And maybe you're thinking, I, I, don't, know, I don't know where to begin praying. Just begin with that burden. And I'm going to recommend, it's going to recommend a resource to you right here. The bookstore is, uh, is going to be getting them in soon, but it's just a book. It's called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. And it's a real short book. It's a simple book, and it makes a great Christmas gift. It just walks you through, step by step, how to pray the scriptures. Because you know, when you and I pray God's word, do you know what we're praying? We're praying God's will. See, Paul, he had a God-sized burden. And he's praying the will of God, praying that the lost would come to Christ. And I want to challenge you tonight that as much as, as you know from Scripture, as much as you know in your head and, and even in your heart, God's desire for the lost, our, our challenge tonight is to then put that into practice. It's, it's, it's to put our hands to the plow. It's to be, it's to live that type of life that is a messenger of the gospel. We're going to see as we continue tonight that, that Paul doesn't just identify this head, heart, hands problem. He also gives the answer 
the solution to that problem. Read with me what happens next. We continue in verse 4. Paul writes, he says, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for who? Everyone who believes. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And that is the message concerning faith that we declare, that we proclaim. So, so Christ, he is the culmination or the end of the law. It doesn't mean the law is over. It doesn't mean that, that the law was put into a first century paper shredder. Rather, it means that the works of Christ now become the basis of our relationship with God. It's no longer the things that we do. It's no longer us trying to keep the law. It's that Jesus has already accomplished that. Now, Paul says that there are two approaches to a foundation of righteousness. And every person, Jew, Gentile, believer, unbeliever, every single person is on one of these two approaches to being right with God. The first approach, we can illustrate it like this. We have a, a picture here um, of a swimmer. And if we were to zoom out on th- this swimmer, we, we would say that trying to keep the law on our own would be like trying to swim across the Atlantic Ocean by ourselves unassisted. I, I, I don't, I don't want to be a pessimist here and say it's impossible, but folks, that's impossible. That's that's not going to happen. But this is what trying to be right with God on our own, apart from Christ, would be like. But Paul says it doesn't have to be like that. Because because Jesus did something that this swimmer can't do. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus, it would be like trying to cross the ocean in one of these. Wait for it. There it is. Yeah, 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 first class. See, on a plane, the only thing you and I have to do is find our seat. And then, depending on the flight, you know, maybe see what's on the the, the media screen there. But, you know, but it's just sit back and what? Enjoy the ride. It doesn't mean there's not going to be turbulence. It doesn't mean there won't be detours. But you know what that plane does do? It makes it possible to do the impossible. Do you know what faith in Jesus does? It makes, Jesus makes it possible to what? Do the impossible. Now, I know this illustration has its flaws, but but I hope it communicates the point of righteousness by faith and righteousness by trying to keep the law on our own. James says it like this in James 2.10. He says, for whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Romans 3.10. We're going to hit a few verses here pretty quick. Romans 3.10. No one is righteous. No, not one. And then you're saying, well, well, Pastor Dave, that's the New Testament. Well, let's look at the Old Testament. Psalm 53, look at this. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone, how many who? Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is swimming across the ocean by yourself unassisted. Now, the good news is that, again, we don't have to take that approach. We can place our faith in Jesus because through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, he accomplished what you and I will never accomplish. He accomplished the impossible. 1 Peter 2, he says this. Where are we at? Over here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22 says, 
He, Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, again, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become what? The righteousness of God. Righteousness, our right standing, body, soul, and spirit, our, the, the, the entire you is found right in God's sight because of Jesus. And when, a, when you and I place our faith in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Christ in you, the hope of glory. He doesn't see, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood of his son that's covered all of that. So then why did God give the law? Well, God gave the law to reveal his standard of absolute righteousness and to convict to persuade, to convince you and I of our need for salvation. Look at what Romans 3.20 says. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So, so the law, the law gives us understanding to the information. Now, the law shows us our fallen condition, our need for salvation, and when our, our faith is placed in Christ, transformation happens. Look with me what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. Many of you know the verse. For it is by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. Not works. Through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So I just want to pause here. I just want to ask you, are you swimming across the ocean or are you flying across the ocean? Every single one of us are on one of those two approaches. Read with me in, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Verse 11, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. Yeah, friend, the second way that you and I are to live our life, the second way that every Christ follower is to live, is that we are to live a Christ-centered life. We are to live a Christ-centered life. Now, the Bible says here in our text, verse 9 starts off with this word, if. That's conditional. So, conditional, Paul says, if you, it's also personal. If you declare, if you confess, if you agree with God that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, there's a promise involved. And what is that promise? You will be saved. Declare, believe. We talked earlier three factors that led to Israel's unbelief. And it had to do with what? The head, the hands, and the heart. Paul's addressing that. He says, if you declare... Well, that's, that's, your, that's your head, your mouth, if you declare. And if you believe, what's that? It's your heart. So Paul is beginning to, to involve now to address the head and the heart issue. He says, if you declare and if you believe, you will be saved. The result, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, with the heart... We believe. What is the heart? Well, the heart is more than, than just this pump of blood inside of you and I. 
Right? The heart is the center of all desire, of all purpose, of all confidence, of all of, of life. It's the real, it's the inner you. Paul says then, with the mouth we confess. We publicly and openly make known the faith that is in our heart. We could say today the heart is the soil that faith is planted in. So faith, faith is not a private matter. Did you know today that, that, that you being a believer, if you're a believer tonight here online, if you're a believer, that's not a private matter. There's no such thing as a closet Christian. There is no such thing. You will not find that in Scripture. Jesus says in Luke 12 that we're to shout it from where? The rooftops. Now, now why? Why must we? Why does Paul say that we must declare with our mouth and believe in our heart? Why does he connect those two? Well, let's think of it like this. Let me see where I got it here. Bear with me here. A lot of us have buckets. I'm sure you have a bucket in your house, in your shed, in your garage, somewhere. You might have a hole in it. Who knows what? But buckets are used for a lot of things, aren't they? I mean, you can put, we can put water in here. We can put soap. You can, you can, I, I, I carried my Bible and my, that book and my iPad in here to come up on stage. Buckets have utility value. So you can do a lot with buckets. But when Paul says you must declare with your mouth and believe in your heart, he is taking Jesus, he's taking faith, and he's taking it from an idea, and he's putting it into reality. You see, faith for a lot of people, faith is an idea. Faith is something that we can talk about, sounds cool. Yeah, I got faith in this, got faith in that. And it just gets added into our bucket with all the other stuff that's in our bucket. When faith is just an idea, when Jesus is just an idea to you, Jesus lives in your bucket. Do you know what buckets don't do? Buckets don't change lives. If Jesus is in your bucket, your life will not transform. Your life will not change. It's when your faith in Jesus comes out of that bucket. And this is where the illustration gets messy because it takes me a minute. That's loud. It's really loud. And faith is worn on our hearts. When you and I take Jesus out of the idea bucket... And we, I'm sorry, when we declare Jesus with our mouth, he's no longer just an idea. He comes out of the bucket and our mouth, right, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you and I declare Jesus as Lord, he comes out of the bucket and he moves into our heart. Our faith, our heart is the soil for our faith. So I just want to ask you tonight, is Jesus in your bucket or is he in your heart? Is faith in a bucket or is your faith in Jesus? Now, let's read what happens next. Paul tells us that every person, verses 12 and 13, every person needs saving, Jew and Gentile. The religious and the non-religious both need Jesus to save them. Now, some of you here, maybe you're very religious. Maybe you've been, been going to church for a long time. You're part of a community group. You're giving of your, your time, talent, resources. But Jesus is still in that bucket. The non-religious, those who, who maybe this is your first time at church, maybe this is your first time watching an online service, and you've got questions about life, about eternity, 
questions of why, how. The challenge for you tonight is going to be to take this, take God as an idea and to move him into your heart in, by faith. With the mouth, we declare. With the heart, we believe. And the promise is what? Salvation. Live a Christ-centered life. Read with me what happens next. We're going to read verses 13 through 15. Paul says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Paul's talked about the head, and he's talked about the heart. Guess what he's going to talk about next? The hands. If you're taking notes tonight, the third way that God desires every Christ follower to live is that we would live a gospel-driven life is that you personally would live a gospel-driven life, that I would live a gospel-driven life personally. Paul had that heartfelt burden for the salvation of the Jews. As a quick recap, what did he do? He prayed about that burden. He identified with their lost condition. He exposed the reason for their unbelief. And now he generates a call to action. He asks a series of rhetorical questions. We're going to go through them. He asks a question, then he answers it. He says, I'm going to paraphrase here, how can both the religious and non-religious call on Jesus? They must believe is the answer. Next question he asks, well, how then can they believe? The answer, they must hear the good news. They must hear the gospel. He asks a third question. How can they hear the good news? How can they hear the gospel? And he answers it. Someone must tell them. And then he asks the last question. Well, how can someone tell them? And he answers it. Someone must go. Someone must go tell them. As we've been talking tonight, we've, again, we've talked about the head. We've talked about the heart. And many Christians stop there. They've declared Jesus, and they believe in Jesus, and they've received that promise of eternal salvation. See, but that's, that's not the end of the Christian experience. That's the beginning, friend. Because what comes next is the hands. Or as Paul writes, how beautiful are the feet. You see, the difference between someone hearing the gospel and not hearing the gospel, between believing, I'm going to rephrase that. Bear with me. I want to have right doctrine here. The difference between someone hearing the gospel and not hearing the gospel is you and I. You say, well, well how can you say that? Because Paul says, they're not going to hear if someone doesn't go. So turn to the person next to you and just say, you're that someone. If, if, you're, if there's no one sitting next to you, friend, you can just say, I'm that someone. I'm that someone. See, Paul spoke of the Israelites as having a zeal without knowledge. They were active, they were busy doing religious-like things, but there was little to no faithfulness in the mission of God. We, we, we could say about the Jews, they went to church regularly, they prayed often, they participated in small group, they memorized scripture, they gave frequently and even abundantly by all appearances. They were who we would classify today as mature believers. However, they lacked one crucial thing, 
a knowledge or an understanding of the mission of God. You see, biblical knowledge begins with properly understanding our relationship with God and he with us. And Jesus said it like this in John 10, 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep, what? Know me. In contrast to the unbelieving Jews of his day, Jesus said in John 8, 54, he said this. He said, nope. There it is. He said, my father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. So Jesus makes this contrast. And he he says the knowledge is about understanding our relationship with God and he with us. So knowledge is to know Jesus through faith, not by works. It's to know him through faith, believing in him, following him, and both loving him and being loved by him. See, it's a relationship. Biblical knowledge is properly understanding our relationship with God. Now, knowledge, that proper knowledge, that proper understanding, that transformational knowledge puts our faith in Jesus into action. And with clarity, it brings today into perspective with eternity. Having an understanding of our knowledge of our relationship with Jesus connects our head to our heart to our what? Hands. To a singular purpose. Living a gospel-driven life. See, through knowledge, we understand how our head, our heart, and our hands relate to Jesus' mission. So when we ask ourselves those same four rhetorical questions that that we talked about earlier, we answer them with a knowledge of our relationship with Jesus. See, Jesus came from heaven to earth to seek and save the lost. He came on the basis of love for the purpose of relationship, for an unbeliever to call on Jesus, someone, a believer, must go. You're that someone. I'm that someone. I want to show you a picture. I'm on the screen here of the world. One of the beautiful things about Florida is we can pick it out right away. (laughs) So you know where we are, you know where you live. When we look at that, let's keep this picture up for a minute if we could, please. As you look at that, there's over 7 billion people that don't know Jesus. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. You see, God's mission continues. God desires every person to know him through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's going to require some of you to no longer live in Melbourne, Florida. That's going to require some of you to no longer live in the United States. And maybe you're thinking, well, man, all my family is here. I have a great job and there are needs for the gospel here too. Didn't... Didn't Paul write, didn't Luke write in Acts, didn't he say that uh, in Acts 1, 8, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth? And man, Pastor David, Melbourne's kind of like my Jerusalem. I'm just going to be a witness for Jesus here. Maybe, but I used to be a firefighter paramedic for Orange County Fire Rescue. And as a medic on scene, we would, we would do this thing called triage. Many of you are familiar with that term, triage. Triage is simply prioritizing the more injured or those with the greatest need over those with a lesser need. So, for example, 
if we were on scene and, and there were two patients, and let's say, let's just say one, let's just get extreme. One has an amputation, the other has a sprained ankle. We're going to treat the amputee before we treat the sprained ankle. It's not because we love the amputee more or that we don't love the one with the sprained ankle. It's just the, the one who has an amputated limb has the greater what? Need. He's going to be fine. This person has the greater need. What if we triaged missions the same way? Let's put that world map back up there if we could, please. What if we looked at this world map and we looked at the nations and we said, where's the greatest need? Where are those nations, where are those cultures, where are those people groups that don't have established churches, that don't have easy access to the gospel, that, that, that don't have a, a, a Christian influence? And where are those nations that have an abundance? What if we triaged missions? What if you triaged? What if this was more than just something that we talked about that you went home and put in your bucket? What if this was something that you lived out? And as you look at that map and you look at your life and you look at the scriptures and you contemplate your own head, heart, and hands, could it be that you truly are that someone that God desires to send? Because there are people who need to hear Jesus. And they won't if someone doesn't what? Go. It's that simple. So let's talk about it. The argument becomes, well, I'm not called to go. Interestingly, if we did a word search in the Bible for called, we would find that a majority of its uses uh, refer to the calling to come to Christ for salvation. Right? How can they call on the one they have not believed in? Someone must go. So called ones are sent ones. Paul equated his calling to come to Christ for salvation with his responsibility to reach the nations. Look with me at Galatians 1, verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. In, in these two verses, Paul connects his coming to Christ for salvation with a responsibility to go. So the question isn't, is God calling you? Next, see, Paul understood he, he had that general responsibility. So then the question is, well, I, I'm not a preacher. So I must not be that someone. Well, I love how Jesus confronted that in Matthew 5, 16. He said, let them see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Again, 1 Peter 2, 12, Peter writes, live such good lives among the pagans or unbelievers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, missions is a both-end ministry. Missions requires both preaching, right, the, the sharing of the gospel with words, and it also requires lifestyle evangelism to live among the lost. So let your light shine. And then the argument becomes, well, well, we can just send money to support the indigenous people. We can send money to support the local church in that nation. And if we just sent money to support the local church, which, by the way, if you support missions financially, praise God. Like, that, that is a valuable ministry. And our missionaries on the field today from CCM and from many, many churches around the world are preaching the gospel because of your faithful support. But, but don't let that just be, don't let that just be the end. You see, we would not be as invested in God's global plan of redemption if all we did was write checks. 
See, when we send our own sons and daughters, we become vested in the mission of God. Aren't you thankful today that God didn't just write a check? He sent his son. Maybe you're thinking, well, God's, God's using me here. Look at what Paul wrote, or what's recorded of Paul in Acts 13. Luke wrote it. He says, now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Now he lists those prophets and teachers at the church. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, uh, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, and Saul. That's Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, remember our first point, live a biblically prayerful life? After they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and what? Sent them off. You see, Paul was a pastor at the church of Antioch. And he was a gifted pastor. He is listed in a record of teachers, prophets. And while he was actively doing the work of the ministry and fulfilling the office of pastor, helping lead the church, it was while he was there that God moved him, that God sent him. You see, God moves his people from place of ministry to place of ministry. The ministry itself does not define the purpose. It does not define your purpose. Purpose is simply found in following Jesus. You know, that's all God is looking. That's all Jesus is asking of you and I. John 15, abide in me. That's all he's looking for. So the question then isn't, am I that someone to go? Rather, I I like how Hudson Taylor states it. He says it like this. He says, it will not do to say that you have no special call to go to China or to global missions in general. With these facts before you and with the command of the Lord Jesus to go and preach the gospel to every creature, you need rather to ascertain whether you have a special call to stay at home. Yeah, you can clap to that because people believe when they hear the gospel, they hear when people like you and I go. See, God has no problem stopping us from going. He has a problem starting us. So now what? But we do what Paul and the church of Antioch did. You fast and pray. That your whole head, heart, and hands would be fully engaged in the mission of God. That you would have a global vision for the gospel. You know what that's going to take? That's going to take a God-sized burden. That he would open the eyes of our hearts to not just see the need for the gospel around the world, but that he would light a fire in our hearts that some of us would be that someone. Let's read this last section together. Verse 16. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of God. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Aren't you glad today God is patient? That he is gracious with you and I? That he is merciful to you and I? You see, people's response to the gospel when we go, whether you go across the street to your neighbor, whether you go to the office next to you where you work, 
or whether you truly do go to the nations. People's response is not a measure of your effectiveness. It's not a, it's not a measure of, the, of a lack of power in the gospel as if there were one. See, faithfulness and effectiveness is not found in our work, but it's found in Christ who's already done the work. God says all day long, I hold out my hands. God's patient. He's patient with the nations, and he's patient with you and I. And for you and I, what is he looking for us? He's looking for you and I to simply live a life that is faithful to him. A, A life that simply says, yes, Lord. Now, what's the question? That that would just be our response, that we would have a willingness to go and do whatever God asks. Our head, our heart, and our hands connected. The life that Christ calls us to live, a biblically prayerful life, a Christ-centered life, and a gospel-driven life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you that you have a heart for the nations. And and Lord, as we gather here tonight and we just contemplate the awesomeness and the grandness of of your heart and your vision, Lord, we recognize that, that because you have a heart for the nations, we here tonight have heard the good news. Because, Lord, if your heart was only for Israel, we would all be without hope. So, Lord, it's our prayer tonight that you would expand our own minds, that you would enlarge in our own hearts. God, that you would open our hands to let go of the things of this world, that we may lay a hold of you as you have laid hold of us. God, we pray for your divine guidance. We pray for your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that someone would go. So speak to us, Lord. Reveal your good, pleasing, and perfect will. Thank you for sending your Son. We love you. In Jesus' name.